Welcome, my name is Raj Pasord, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this series of podcasts produced by the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Each month, we hope to bring you the very latest breakthroughs and discoveries from the fields of neuroscience, psychiatry, and psychology. This month, we have an interview with Professor Ming Swang, perhaps the foremost genetic epidemiologist in the world. Based at the universities of Harvard and California, he's publishing a paper in this October's issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry examining whether it's possible to spot psychological differences between those at high risk for developing schizophrenia in the future and the general population. In theory, this research could lead us to be able to predict who's going to develop schizophrenia many years before the onset of the illness. This, in turn, could help doctors even prevent the illness. But first, I'm pleased to have here in the studio Mike Slade, a clinical psychologist from the Institute of Psychiatry, who is publishing in the October issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry an intriguing paper on whether simply measuring scientifically how psychiatric patients are doing could have an impact on their care, with some surprising results. So, Mike Slade, you've produced this very intriguing paper with some colleagues at the Institute of Psychiatry where you're looking at measuring outcome in psychiatric patients and seeing the impact of that. First of all, what did you mean by measuring outcome and what kind of measures did you use? Well, when we talk about outcome, we're talking about various indicators of the treatment progress, the impact it's having on service users who are using mental health care. So what what outcome measures are, are robust approaches to measuring various aspects of treatment progress we hope will happen. So you would hope that an outcome measure would be psychometrically established. That's to say it's robust in terms of it measures what you think it's going to measure, and it measures accurately after repeated administrations, providing nothing has changed. So those we chose carefully selected outcome measures that measure key things that are important in mental health care, things like quality of life, therapeutic alliance, the extent to which staff and patients feel they're working together in the same direction, and severity of mental health problems. What were you hoping to find? Well, it, it, it's been a, a tricky study to construct because on the one hand, we're talking about things that everybody thinks are an everyday part of practice. Of course, in clinical practice, we assess outcome. And yet what we're learning is, is that there may be benefits that arise from particularly focusing on outcomes and using those as things that guide and shape clinical decision making. So we were hoping that by assessing outcome and providing that, if you like, more visibly on the radar in terms of the interactions that go on between the clinician and, and the service user, we would shape subsequent behaviour towards focusing on activities that improve those outcomes. So we had quite a job of selling this to staff because, as you can see, it's, it's blending what seems to be normal routine clinical practice with trying to make it into an intervention in itself. But we, we had some surprising and interesting findings. What were those findings? Well, one of the um, key findings we were looking for was, was whether um, there were any advantages to having a more structured approach to using routine outcome assessment as the intervention was, was called as a whole. And, and there were, there are clinical and cost advantages. Um, the clinical advantage is that patient admissions reduced for the intervention group and that in itself leads to cost savings, quite marked cost savings, which um, if they, if they generalise to the population would suggest this is an intervention that should be rolled out. We also were very interested in whether there was any difference in patient-rated outcomes. That's to say the patient perspective on their quality of life, their subjective well-being, and um, the therapeutic alliance that they have with staff. And we found there weren't any changes in, in this. So in, in a way that was disappointing. We, we did some qualitative work looking at 
which aspects of the intervention were helpful and which weren't. And it looked like having the assessments being made and also providing the feedback got staff thinking, it also got patients thinking, but it didn't, as they, as they claimed, lead to behaviour change. So we don't think that having the, the, the outcome more visibly on, on the radar in itself led to interventions that particularly focused on those outcomes. But we do think something was going on because there were reduced admissions. There was a very striking uh, reduction in hospital admissions. Um, why do you think that was? Well, our, our best speculation at this point is, is it's because this kind of approach provides a more structured approach to developing communication between staff and patients. So in other words, it's putting things into the clinical dialogue that might not otherwise be there and that will be helpful for both staff and patients to know about and think about and react to. And it also does it earlier. So our, our, our guess is what's happening is that regular routine assessment of outcome leads to earlier information which allows earlier treatment and, in, and help and support to reduce the trajectory of any potential relapse, which is, of course, part of the key goals of clinical clinical care. But because often people don't pop up onto the radar until they're in crisis, then we, a more structured approach may be more helpful in developing earlier intervention. But I think that these findings are rather disturbing because really what you're doing is just measuring something that ought to be being measured anyway when these patients are being seen by their nurses or doctors. And what you're discovering is that getting them to actually measure this stuff formally, how the patient is doing, what their symptoms are like, how they're functioning in everyday life, the quality of the relationship between the patient and doctor, that getting getting it measured formally seems to make a dramatic difference. Absolutely. To, to, to the outcome. So doesn't this really tell us that actually when patients see doctors and nurses, what should be happening between them isn't happening? It, it does, and, and we know from, from other research, um, Simon Gilbody's National Survey of Psychiatrists in, in 2001 showed that psychiatrists in general do not use routine outcome assessments. So why is that? Well, uh, I mean, it's an interesting question. One of the um, aspects that we were asking staff to rate and then feeding back what they said to patients was the therapeutic alliance scale. And this, one of the questions on the um, helping alliance scale that we, we used was, do, do you look forward to seeing the patient? And several staff were very anxious about this. They were saying, essentially, I can't be honest about this kind of question. I mean, you know, I can't say it, and then it's fed back to the patient. What was interesting is that specific question in a previous study has been found to predict hospitalisation rates at 18-month follow-up. So those patients where the clinician looks forward to seeing them tend not to end up in hospital as much as those where 18 months earlier the clinician says, I don't look forward to seeing them. So they're important questions that should be featuring in clinical practice, but for a range of reasons at the moment aren't. So um, the dramatic reduction in hospital admissions led to some quite impressive cost savings if actually this was to be a routine part of NHS care. Well, that's right. Two, um, £2,500 per participating patient was, was the, the um, cost saving we found, and um, it was certainly significant. Whether it was a generalisable finding, of course, is, is for, for future research. But to the extent that there is any cost saving in relation to psychiatric beds, they're so expensive that the intervention pays for itself, providing it at the minimum has no effect on, on clin clinical outcomes. So it's an intervention it's very easy to recommend. Of course, it does mean substantially changing, in a way, the culture of care. And this was one of the challenges in, in the service we were working in, which I think is replicated nationally, that what gets monitored routinely is not the important stuff. It's all it's 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 information around service activity and structures and processes. It's not outcome data. 
and, and my central thesis, the interest I had in this whole study, is that if we have an outcome-focused service that's using outcome data to drive it, then we can essentially make much more effective, efficient services that are much more geared towards meeting the needs of, of patients. And this is a model that's well recognised in the commercial world, but hasn't yet come into the mental health part of, of the NHS. What do you mean by it's well recognised in the commercial world? And what do you mean by outcome in that, in that context? Knowing what, if, if you want to use the um, inflammatory language of business, know, knowing what the core purpose of your business is and what you're trying to achieve and having a, an un, unremitting focus on activities that contribute to that goal. And if we brought that set of values into mental health care, then one would contend there's several things you would choose to do differently. Now, one of the very disturbing findings of your study, and it wasn't something you set out to investigate, but it was a kind of almost a side effect of the study, a side, a side result, was that between one in four to one in three of the patients basically ended up having a different staff member as their primary care coordinator, their key contact or looking after them, at seven-month follow-up. So there was a dramatic amount of staff turnover, leading to really a profound problem in terms of continuity of care. These patients just basically, month after month, didn't know who was going to be looking after them. That's right. I mean, one of the strengths of the study was that we had over 90 staff of all different professional backgrounds involved. So it wasn't profession-specific finding. But but as you say, a, a large proportion of staff were saying, well, the reality was they had a different member of staff after seven months. And, and that had two knock-on effects. One relevant to the study was that we were trying to change the culture of care so that staff became more focused on outcome. And of course, if the staff change, all the gains you may have got are then lost with that change. The second thing is, is the point you make about continuity of care. Again and again, people using services say they don't like turning up. Each appointment is a different person, a different doctor, a different nurse. So w- one of the real challenges is, is trying to bring stability into what is, is at least in our study, a, a quite changing context. Now, this service you looked at actually happens to be uh, a part of South London where I myself work. Um, do you think this service was particularly hard-pressed or different in some way from the rest of the country in terms of mental health services? Or do, do you think it's actually pretty representative of what's going on uh, in terms of mental health care in the NHS? I think they would say that they are overrun with changes, um, have far too many demands on, on them. There's a constant um, stream of policy implementation guidelines to implement and nice guidelines to restructure to be able to implement. And in that sense, that's the message I hear when I talk to my NHS colleagues nationally, this picture of trying to find some stability to be able to do some good quality work in the midst of a context that's ever-changing with ever-changing demands is one of the real challenges. And particularly for interventions like this that are focused partly on trying to change the culture of care. In other words, the values of the the system. It's very difficult when the system can't think, when the system is so overrun with external demands, it's struggling to survive. What ideally one would need is a much more settled mental health system, but um, I don't think Croydon was that system any more than I suspect anywhere else at the moment. But one senses that these staff members were so pressurised that they ended up not really doing the basics of their job, with all due respect to them, in terms of actually getting a sense of what was going on with the patient. Well, that that's rather goes to the, the core of what mental health care is about. My assumption, in terms of the kind of feedback that, that was being generated, was staff actually had a good view of 
the patient from a clinical perspective. I think the, the study was deliberately intended to try and broaden that view to consider some areas that are not traditionally included in what constitutes a clinical perspective. And in that sense, there probably was new information being uncovered by the assessments. So we were, for example, asking um, the service users to identify problems they may have in terms of intimate relationships, sexual expression, um, having enough company, um, having the ability to look after themselves, things that don't always feature in every clinical interaction as an, ins as an assessment point, which perhaps focuses more on symptomatology and mental state examination. Now, you're advocating at the end of this paper that you think, although it costs around £400 per person to implement these measurements that you're advocating should be measured, um, it would cost a primary care trust on average, with an average caseload of around 3,500 uh, patients, £1.4 million uh, to implement this. Now, in, in these hard-pressed financial um, circumstances the NHS finds itself in, these financial constraints it finds itself in, it's unlikely that 1.4 million is going to be found, isn't it? Well, it depends how you see that. You could make the case, I mean, it's, it's a statement of mathematical fact, the, the sums in the paper. You, you could make the case this is an invest-to-save opportunity um, in, in terms of developing a, a new element of the system to support this structured approach to communication is likely to lead to reduced bed usage. Of course, a sophisticated economist, if they were sitting here, would say, well, the beds will just fill up with other people, but nonetheless, that may be the case you would make. The, the radical suggestion, I guess, would be to say this points to the need to slightly re-engineer how the activities we prioritise. And I advocate, for example, giving consideration to the idea of abolishing clinical audit departments and replacing them with clinical outcome departments, because I think the information provided by that kind of entity would be much higher quality and much more salient to fostering and promoting good quality care. If there's someone listening to this, maybe a psychiatrist, a clinician, a nurse, or even, let's say, a service user or a patient, wants to benefit from this study, let's say wants to structure their interaction uh, with, with patients or doctors a bit more and maybe measure outcome more formally, other than reading your paper and maybe borrowing some of the, the, the outcome measures you use, is there a way that people could do it for themselves? I, th I think I would say to service users, the message of this paper is if there are issues in your life, let staff know. Don't hold back to be asked, don't hold back for your next appointment. Let, let them know and, and a good responsive mental health service will be very interested in that. In terms of the, the response from staff, I, th I think there are quite easy th steps that could be taken to, to more strongly develop the ability to know what's going on with the patient. For example, more regular use of outcome measures that even are, are a, a screening thing done before an appointment when someone a, a appears for their outpatient appointment, the receptionist gives them a, a brief form to fill in or supports them if they need it and that information goes in with the patient. So this is the approach that um, Jim Van Oss's group have, have used in their 2COM study with very good impact in terms of um, differences being perceived in, in treatment planning. So th these are some of the interventions that I think for the future we need to explore much more fully. Mike Slade, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You're listening to the monthly podcast of the Royal College of Psychiatrists with me, Dr. Raj Pasord. And our next guest is Professor Ming Swang. He's a professor of genetics and epidemiology at the Universities of California and Harvard. He's publishing a fascinating paper in this month's issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry. The study investigated whether it's possible to detect psychological differences in young people at high risk for developing schizophrenia in the future. I started by asking him how he identified children who are at high risk for developing schizophrenia in order to study them. Essentially, our parents 
who are schizophrenia and their offsprings, we select them. Or uh, these are offsprings of whose their brothers and sisters. These are all what in generic term is the uh, having 50% gene in common uh, with the parents and with the selves. So we anticipate that, that these are really genetic high risk. Uh, high risk, there are many, many studies, but the, the one which we are talking about is the genetic high risk within the families. So you're looking at a group of children who you think have a 50% uh, genetic risk, in a way, of developing a schizophrenia because they have a first-degree relative, i.e. a mother or a father or a brother or a sister, already with schizophrenia. So they, ha- they have a large number of genes, yes, possibly, yes. that might predict they would develop schizophrenia yeah. in the future. Theoretically, it's the 50% gene in common, but not all genes there will manifest. Therefore, uh, epidemiologically, you can talk about uh, in the children or the brothers and sisters, on the average, is between 6 to 10% uh, versus the uh, unrelated, which is estimated to be uh, around the 0.6 to, 0.1, uh, to 1%. So it's uh, about a 10%, 10, uh, 10.4%. Uh, increase of the risk to developing schizophrenia. So these are children who are at 10 times the risk of developing schizophrenia, as you'd expect from the general population. Yes. yes. Uh, because of they, ha- they have close relatives yes. already with schizophrenia. Yeah. Now, it's very important to understand that these children didn't have schizophrenia. You're anticipating that they're more likely to develop it in the future, but actually none of them really have it yet. And your research found that these children differed from normal controls very significantly yeah. in psychological and social function. Yes. So essentially, their uh, social adjustment uh, seems to be different. And uh, from the paper, as you can see, uh, they tend not to have uh, uh, pleasure in uh, enjoying happy events, which is called anhedonia. Those are very important characteristics of those uh, people, and they tend not to like to associate with peers, uh, like to be alone. So those are very uh, interesting uh, characteristics. So these are people who found it very difficult to derive pleasure from yes, life, yes. and also had trouble in terms of their social relationships. Yes, yes. You mention a, a term in the paper to do with reward. Um, they seem to have a difficulty over rewards. Yes. Essentially, for the normal person, you like to get the, or, uh, or some reward and uh, have a pleasure out of it. Uh, these people tend not to be uh, motivated by any reward or pleasure uh, because the, they don't have that sense of feeling or, uh, a pleasure. Uh, in terms of the uh, getting reward. You also found a, a problem they had to do with being self-directed. Yeah. W- what are you referring to when you oh, refer to uh, self-direction? The is that uh, for the normal person, they usually have the well-motivated, their own plan uh, for the future and for the task of which they are, uh, uh, are planning to do. These uh, people tend not to have a very uh, well-established goal uh, in life. And that is what uh, we are talking about, the uh, cell directed 
Also, you found, I think, in not in your necessarily your study, but other studies have found differences with these high risk children, yes. including a, a, a term that's used that's called affective flattening. Yes, which means I think that their emotions yes. are less expressed. These are people who don't seem to express emotions the way the rest of us do. Yes, yes,、uh, that is actually the core feature of a negative symptom in schizophrenia. And、uh, the flatness of affect without showing any、uh, emotion is the core features of、uh, a schizotypal personality disorder or schizophrenia. So we now know from your research that these are children who haven't yet developed schizophrenia, but they have several interesting, what some people would call psychological or social deficits. But does this actually manifest in real problems in the real world? Yes, for them. To learn、uh, in school, or to interact with friends, or with the in within the family, they have difficulties in communicating、uh, with people. So it, it result into social maladjustment. Now, your study has major implications for the prevention of schizophrenia、yeah. because if, as you claim to be able to do, you can identify not just people who are at high genetic risk of developing schizophrenia, but when you study them, you think you can spot some of the early signs. Some people might call the prodromal signs、yes. that they are at high risk of developing this severe psychotic disorder in the future.、Mm-hmm. It would suggest that maybe we should start treating.、Uh, Children like this early. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've already done research, starting with the early treatment using antipsychotic medication for people who aren't yet psychotic. Yes,、uh, that is only for research purpose. As you may know, it's been published in biological psychiatry to call the attention of this、uh, specific group of people when you use the low dosage of antipsychotic to see if uh, these uh, 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 social Or、uh, withdrawal, and the、uh, this、uh, neuropsychological deficit could be、uh, improved. The issue now is very important: how to identify them and to make the、uh, positive diagnosis of、uh, they are actually of the high risk to develop、uh, schizophrenia. Not all of the, these、uh, are at high risk, so it is important to do the. Not just the phenomenological personality、uh, dimension assessment. I think the future we hope to, from the、uh, biological markers, utilizing blood, and to see are there any、uh, particular gene which are、uh, expressed differently from the normal、uh, people. Once we can identify them, the real、uh, medication. Could be developed. That is what、uh, we are trying to do. But you've already done research where you've administered medication to people who haven't yet developed schizophrenia, and you think they've got better. They've got、result. better. Got better. Do you think you've prevented schizophrenia developing?、Uh, okay. If this symptom could be better, or their adjustment will be better, and therefore, even though they have genes, would less likely trigger. Them to develop、uh, positive symptoms of delusion and hallucination—that is the idea behind.、Uh, however, after medication stop, they revert. So it is、uh, very important to find the、uh, any kind of medication which actually can serve 
as the uh, maintenance treatment. But even in other fields of uh, medicine, in hypertension, you don't stop. You continue to use them to control. So if we can have uh, some medications or uh, two or three kind of medication combined like in treatment hypertension, you may be able to sustain these people not to develop uh, or uh, schizophrenic psychosis. What we are trying to prevent is the development of psychosis. And you're saying that when you gave treatment to these people, they got better, but when you stopped the treatment, they got worse again. No, they return. Yeah. Return to uh, before treatment. Yeah. But this is only based on six weeks of uh, experiment. Now we are doing six months. And to see... Uh, in combination with biological markers, can we find a group of people who we can really zero in on treatment? But don't forget, treatment is not just a medication, as you are a psychiatrist, you know. There are many, many uh, social environments which we can develop for these people to be relatively well protected, not to trigger uh, them to develop psychosis. Aren't there some ethical questions over this kind of research, though, in the sense you're giving medication to people who actually aren't formally ill, they haven't actually got a diagnosis, and you're giving medication that has side effects sometimes, and sometimes long-term side effects. Some people would say this is ethically dubious research. Yes, yes. I think uh, that was a reason uh, we are starting with uh, only a few cases, and then what we are doing is trying to find medication which may not have the uh, remarkable side effect that in the other field, like uh, user hypertension. All the hypertension, before development of hypertension, they already have borderline, and these are medication all have side effects. But uh, because of uh, usage of it, many, many persons really get the great benefit out of it. Now, going back to the paper, in the paper you found a direct link between the genetic loading, i.e. how strong the genetic risk was for developing schizophrenia, and these various problems that you mentioned of a psychological nature. Like, for example, um, psychological problems like, for example, uh, communication skills, uh, being self-directed, looking for rewards, responding to rewards and um, getting pleasure from life, you found a direct link. Isn't there a criticism of your paper, though, which is that the way you measured genetic loading was people recalling their family history of whether there was a schizophrenic in the family. And maybe there's a link between their tendency to recall, because, you know, that, that may be unreliable, and their poor performance in some of these psychological tests. Isn't that a weakness of the paper? Yeah, uh, that, I think, uh, is a legitimate uh, or a criticism. However, we did this uh, not knowing they already have uh, uh, given that uh, that kind of a, or a classification. We do it blindly. So there is the uh, not a strong uh, artifacts uh, there. Try to eradicate. But uh, what you are talking about is true. Always in the uh, behavioral type of uh, research, this cannot be avoided. So, thank you very much, Professor Swang. Yeah, thank you. You can find more information on both these papers on the Royal College of Psychiatrists website. Don't forget to listen to the podcast as well in the Continuing Professional Development, or CPD, section of the website, where Professor Ming Swang explains some key facts of the genetics of psychosis and Mike Slade describes the recovery model.
Well, that's all from me this month. Don't forget to listen again next month when we'll have more interviews with those at the cutting edge of the latest developments in psychology and psychiatry. Until then, goodbye.